Hello, everybody, and welcome to Cutting In From The Left. I'm your host, Tom Wise, and I have Luis Antonio Streeter with me. How are you doing, Luis? Doing well, Tom. i uh, enjoying the sunshine today. How about you? Yeah, it's a, lo- it's a lovely day here. Great bank holiday weather. I've managed to tear myself away from Morecambe versus Newport County in the League 2 Player <laughs> Final. So I hope this podcast is worth it. Today, it's all about Saturday's big Champions League final. It's all about Chelsea versus Manchester City. It was going to be very interesting how it panned out. You had City, who loved to play their beautiful style of football. You've had Chelsea, who've been accused of sort of killing games, making games a bit boring this season under Tuchel. There's a big shock when the lineups got announced. Pep Guardiola, he started one of them for 59 of Man City's 60 games this season. And for some reason, he did not choose one of Rodri or Fernandinho for this Champions League final. Like Before we get into anything, Luis, can you please explain this for me? I can't. I don't think anyone really can, apart from with reference to, to Pep's personality, perhaps. Um, feeling like he needed to prove something. or well, I mean, I understand the logic in terms of his record against Tuchel the last couple of games, not great. He thought, okay, we need to assert ourselves, have dominance over the game. How about to do that and have possession, have our best ball-playing players in the team? But surely, I mean, he himself must have realised, and looking through all this season as well, how much of the success is built on having the foundation of someone like Rodri or Fernandinho to be able to, to break up the play and then pass it forward. It's not like they're bad passes of the ball either. I'm not talking about guys who, um, who just sit there and do nothing with it. Like, they're both well-versed in using the ball. So it was just a bit baffling at the time, and it's even more baffling in hindsight when you look at, at the result. I read somewhere someone trying to defend him by saying that last year in the Champions League, his big mistake was going really defensive against Lyon. Um, they played three centre-halves in that game and mm. two, hold, two holding midfielders. And this was obviously in the one when we were doing the sort of tournament in Portugal with the one-legged games in the Champions League. And so people thought maybe maybe he felt he was too safe, too defensive last year. And for some reason this year, he had to, you know, come out full blast. But yeah, I mean, it just it came across, before even a ball was kicked, it came across a bit arrogant. It came across a bit like Pep. It's just trying to outthink everybody again with his massive sort of like galaxy brain. It was, it was very strange. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it just adds more fuel to that for the fire that, oh, he basically beats himself, like... He will try to do something that you know, unconventional or shocks people, and then he ends up losing some of the biggest games in, in European football because of it. Whether that's, I'm not sure that's necessarily his intention, but I think maybe he's a little bit not quite out of touch, but maybe he just doesn't realize how this comes across to people who are obviously not kind of a, basically a fixture of the European game at this point. I mean, he's been up there at the top for so long. He's got to be at some level kind of a little bit out of touch of what ordinary fans or ordinary kind of observers think about his team selections. And, you know, he's got a right to have a certain kind of arrogance as well. Like everyone at the top has a certain kind of arrogance. It, you know, they're all um, they're all egotistical to, to some extent. And that's partly how you achieve such a high level. But it does feel like he's a little bit oblivious at times. That's how these things come across. And even just psychologically, maybe that boosted Chelsea because maybe... um. 
Tuchel can say when on team sheets come out now before the game, team talk, look how seriously they're treating this game. Like they clearly don't think that you've got a chance because they're just going to pass it around you. Um, and actually, he could he'd go out and say to, to for example, Ingolo Kante and Jorginho start the game. Look, you, you can get the physical edge on these guys and you can really battle them um, and you can dominate them. You can not have the ball and you can really disrupt their play. And it gives you that extra kind of charge and incentive. And even though it gives you 5% more, maybe that makes a difference in a game like this. So it does seem like a really misguided decision from, from Pep going into it. In terms of the Chelsea team, there was doubts beforehand whether Mendy would be fit to start in goal or whether Kante would be fit to start the game. Uh, they were lucky as, as both were deemed fit and so both did start. Rhys James was deployed at right wing back. He had been playing right-sided centre-back a couple of times, but he was in his much more familiar position as right wing back for this game. And the other decision, uh, Tuchel, he started Kai Havertz on the right flank instead of Christian Pulisic. Uh, and that would pay off handsomely. Um, the game started. Uh, Sterling was picked out early by Edison within the first 10 minutes. Rhys James got caught uh, ball watching, but he managed to get back and pressure him. Snuffed out that chance. Uh, ben Chilwell made a great block to stop Mares scoring. He, he came out of nowhere and just sort of took the ball off his toes at the back post. Um, in terms of Chelsea attacks, uh, Timo Werner had a couple of decent sort of chances. One where he sort of miskicked it somehow hit his standing leg. It was a bit uh, comedic, really. And then um, the other one was straight at the Man City goalkeeper. Um, Chelsea kept making these great blocks down at, in their own box. Rudiger, he, he made a great challenge on a uh, Phil Foden shot that looked like it was goal-bound. And then it was the 42nd minute when Chelsea opened the scoring. Uh, Timo Werner, like this man, I know I keep going about how much I love him, despite much... Uh, much outlay but his run into the channel like completely bamboozled Ruben Diaz like his pace was was absolutely scaring him to death that took Diaz out of the centre created the gap for Havertz to run into and then he took it around the keeper lovely uh, for me a bit of a pet peeve of mine is goalkeepers coming out rushing out as, as quick as they can May, I, I don't know I know he was he was sort of bearing down on the edge of the box but I, I thought maybe the, the goalkeeper didn't need to come out like that and obviously made up Havertz's mind for him uh, back to the game, Silva was forced to limp off uh, before the end of the first half. That was pretty sad, like he was in tears. But then Christian came on and I, I think one of the biggest compliments you can give to Christensen is that you, you barely noticed that Thiago Silva wasn't on the pitch after that. De Bruyne uh, was forced to come off about the hour mark. Uh, Rudiger made sure he uh, got in the way of him, gave him a lovely shiner and he, he had to come off the pitch. I mean, Jesus could come on for City, they had a bit more shape. Fernandinho finally came on in the 63rd minute as, as Pep was almost admitting some guilt for not starting him and realising he'd, he'd made a bit of an error with his team selection. Aspilicueta cleared one over his own bar really well. Sterling came off in the 77th minute, which allowed Aguero to come on, but he wasn't able to have the fairy tale end into his Man City career. And Chelsea won 1-0. So what did you make of it? I think there's a lot to unpack there, I guess. Um, <laughs> going through it a little bit, um, I guess starting starting meaning with Chelsea is kind of a victory. And I think we should focus on them as, as opposed to kind of putting too much blame on Manchester City. Obviously, that can be the temptation. And 
you know, I'm, I'm happy to stick the boot in on, on Pep a little bit, but um, do you have to give a lot of credit to, to Chelsea? Um, as you say, defensively, even with Christensen having to come in for Thiago Silva, uh, sort of midway through the game, they looked overall really assured, really solid. Um, and I saw one or two people coming out and say, oh, imagine if that Mahrez shot had gone in, clipped off the bar. Um, but I mean, apart from that, were there many occasions where you really felt that Manchester City could, could score uh, as opposed to, as you say, the Werner opportunities for Chelsea, which really were good opportunities um, that you'd expect them to, to at least, I would say, bag one of them um, throughout the game. And you also you also had Pulisic, didn't you? At the end, I think mm. Havertz might have put him through one on one, and somehow he sort of skewed it wide. So yeah, it did. It wasn't exactly like City were creating a barrage of chances that they should have scored. No, exactly. They weren't. They weren't besieging the Chelsea goal. Um, I thought, to be honest, well, centre backs played well. Uh, Mendy played well. I think special plaudits probably to the, to the wing backs who I thought were immense. To be honest, um, see, last episode we talked a little bit about the England selection. You know, Reese James and Bill Chil- and Chilwell did a definitely no disservice that to the chances of her being both in the squad and also in the starting lineup, really, because um, I thought they were both absolutely superb. Both kind of keeping that shape, but also having the standard to get up and down, press when they needed to, put in the challenges, really prevent any kind of um, cutting in from the wings as well. Obviously, we know the likes of Mares love to cut in there, exploit that space between potentially, you know, third centre-back and the wing-back, they really weren't able to do any of that Manchester City. Um, I think a lot of that is really down to the hard work of the wing-backs, um, as well as the centre-mids. Again, kind of mentioned Jorginho a little bit uh, last time, where I thought his physicality was a bit lacking in general. But to be honest, I think he really stepped up in this final. He seemed to be really up for it. He was kind of in there challenging for everything, not doing quite the same job as Kante, then who else in the world can? Um, and really kind of complimenting him and matching him and trying to cover for him at times. Um, and those two really did a, an excellent job. As we say, Man City in that midfield, obviously two, two great kind of gifted ball players, but I don't think they could really match the, the energy and the tenacity which, uh, which Chelsea brought to that midfield. And all along, if you consider them as a four, the wing-backs and the centre-mids for Chelsea, they really, I think, were the key in this game. And they provided that platform then for the likes of Havertz and Werner uh, to make runs off of that and really pull off of that and obviously pull a sick later on as well. But I think that was really the foundation for them there. That's really um, won the game for them, I'd say. And, and Man City didn't really seem to have an answer to that, which perhaps they would have if, as we say, uh, Rodri or Fernandinho have been, been there from the start been able to control it a little bit more make sure they can have those dangerous counter-attacks in behind You are right it is easy to fall into that hole of like oh if City had just played these lads like they would have easily walked this game but you have to give yeah the credit to Chelsea like the like you say the both wing-backs played really well we probably wouldn't have selected them in our England starting 11s I don't I don't know whether we would now but they have to be in the conversation like Reese James I've, I've never seen him play so well other than uh, at the very start when he sort of misjudged the Edison pass that let Sterling through. Other than that, yeah. he was he was absolutely amazing. Like I think I would he would I said on a previous one that he would have been my right back to drop, but I really don't know now. I just I, I really don't know. I don't even want to say until until <laughs> next. I'll make my mind up in time for next week. 
but yeah, he he had such a good game. Um, and we've got to talk about Conte, just just how good he was. Like he's an absolute machine. Um, he won 11, 11 duels. He made ten ball recoveries, and he even won a header, didn't he, in the Man City box? I mean, yeah, he's he's just absolutely excellent. Um, uh, Arsene Wenger said that he was a man above everybody else. Jamie Carragher said he's one of the greatest players of the Premier League era. Joe Cole said he's Makaleli plus extra. Um, yeah, I, obviously we want in England this summer, but if France win it and Kante's there with his big grin holding the Euros aloft, then I don't think I'd be that upset. No, no, he's one of the most likable players in football. Um, just great since he's one of the best as well. And yeah, I mean, I didn't really want to mention him too much in the sense just because it's so obvious how good he is like he was head and shoulders above anyone on the pitch really in a sense um that's including as i said some great chelsea performances he just does things on the football pitch that i think very very few players that i've ever seen can do and it's not just his stamina or his physicality um he's got good technique he's got such great awareness he's got such great discipline um he always communicating knowing exactly where he needs to be um, he's just a really intelligent footballer and he combines that with obviously an outrageous uh, level of stamina and, and tenacity and ability to get to places. And yeah, I think I would never call Joe Cole a great analyst of the game, but um, Makaleli plus something is, is somewhat accurate. I mean, basically Makaleli with more pace, more uh, ability to get forward as well. Um, and that's just a, a formidable player. Again, though, I think, I mean, we're obviously going to get to Man City a little bit. Maybe it's a temptation to use that as an excuse. Some in the Man City camp or pro-Man City camp. But, I mean, Kante's an amazing player, but he's not a superhuman. Like, you can beat him. There are plenty of teams who have figured out, even Liverpool this season, who haven't played particularly well, were able to stifle Chelsea with Kante in the team. Um Ideally, really, you want you want three men in the midfield to be able to contain him, or you want at least players in there who can hold and have the discipline and match his tenacity. A player like Fernandinho, um, who would absolutely be able to do that. So it is a bit remarkable that Pep saw Kante in that midfield and decided, I'm, I'm not going to... Uh, well, I guess, first of all, I'm not going to start a player who can break up the play like he can. And second of all, I'm not going to change this before the 60-something minute to bring on a player who can actually kind of perfect the dynamic of this game and change that midfield when it was very obvious by that point what was going on. So you have to say, I don't want to call it arrogance, but it it does seem like he was a little bit slow to change things that I feel like any observer could see were already going wrong. I think when you, you think about the player that came in for Fernandinho having to go out, like Raheem Sterling coming into the team, he's he's not really he's not had the best of seasons overall. He's not really been playing very well of late yeah. anyway. Um, I just if you're going to drop someone like Fernandinho, you at least want it to be a, a positive change in terms of going forward, don't you? Someone you can really rely on. And I think I think Raheem himself would say, you know, this hasn't been his best season. He's he's not been playing that well. I just I just found it a really weird thing to see. Yeah, as you say, it just seems a little bit baffling. Um, I guess if we're, if we're going on to the general theme of his selections and changes, I mean, if you're bringing on the best striker in the club's history and a proven goal scorer in the 77th minute, 
of a final that you desperately need a goal in. It does strike me as a, a little bit odd that you wouldn't give him at least half an hour to just conjure up a goal out of nothing because that's what he can do. And we all, we've seen him do it time after time after time. Big game player. I mean, obviously that, that first Premier League title, he won Manchester City uh, with the iconic moment against QPR. Why don't you give him a little bit more of a chance to, to do something in there? Um, just strikes me as a little bit bizarre. We all know like the Pep system and philosophy, it works. I'm not going to dispute that he hasn't had immense success, but the fact that he's kind of struggled to replicate that in Champions League knockout stages and particularly in terms of winning a Champions League without the influence of Lionel Messi and without that great Barcelona team he assembled, maybe it strikes to a kind of a certain point that something lacking from his mentality in a final that he's willing to admit he's wrong and I think the best managers in that kind of situation will say okay I, I didn't get my team selection right for this final I'm going to switch it around and make sure I can change it and that's almost what happened for example I think of the 2005 final um, obviously an iconic final with Liverpool and Milan and Milan going in 3-0 at half time and I think it wasn't just kind of an inspirational speech at half time that, that changed things a little bit. It was a tactical shift. And part of it was imposed by injury, Harry Kuehl having to come off. But um, basically, Benitez has kind of brought in uh, Didi Harman to be able to play that deeper role, have a little bit more control in the midfield and use it as a platform than to play out and really go out and take the game uh, by a scruff of the neck, kind of unleash Gerard a bit further forward. Um, and get him to change the game and always led to three goals in six minutes. And maybe that's the kind of thing Guardiola should have been looking to do at half time. Say, okay, I admit that maybe I should have started with Fernandinho instead of Sterling. So I bring him on at half time. I give him enough time to change the game. I gave us possession and control and dominance over this second half and give us a really good platform there. And still with plenty of exciting attacking players on the pitch, be able to go out and win the game. I feel like he changed things a little bit too late, a little bit too haphazardly. And at Sage, Chelsea were comfortable enough that it wasn't really a big disruption to them to have to go through that. Um, they still looked a bit dangerous on the counter as well. It's hard to escape the conclusion that, uh, that Guardiola did get it wrong, at least a little bit. I know he's used uh, Gundogan as a six before and he, he has had him there, but it just it felt weird in a season when he is been so vital come up with so many goals you know Man City's top scorer that he was yeah he was the man that had to be that really sort of lined in front of the defence like he wasn't free to make those crazy runs where he ends up at the back post or he just gets in behind the fullback sort of thing like he he just wasn't free at all and I think it was a real waste of him because he's been such a good player this season um, and I, I just thought it was weird because of the lineup they had obviously it was very gung-ho like the, we've seen City a lot this season be really patient with the ball. You know, like there was the quarterfinal with Dortmund when I think he had Cancelo playing and he was giving the ball away too much. And so he took him off and he put Zinchenko on who, you know, he, he he's much, he's a better passer, like, but the game is it's a bit slower. It was like you had Zinchenko, you know, it would have almost been better if you're going to go the way they went at the weekend, almost play Cancelo instead of Zinchenko. Like, I don't, I think there's a lot of times when Zinchenko was just, he didn't know where everyone else had gone sort of thing. It, it was just, a, it was a strange thing to see. Yeah, and um, 
again, I don't really know the full process of that from Pep's side. Perhaps it's just, it's just too cool kind of read it really well. Um, and I think the free at the back system is almost a little bit more difficult to deal with for Man City than a, than a kind of a standard four at the back as well. Uh, because Man City are a team who kind of like to play those quick transitions to get bodies in the box quite quickly. But the centre-backs for, for Chelsea kind of tend to, to drop deep fairly early on, don't allow that space in behind. They don't allow those, those cutbacks from the wings, uh, which Man City like to prefer in terms of setting up scoring chances. Um, I think another thing to, to pick up on is a lack of a focal point as well for Man City. Obviously pretty fluid, but generally looking to, to play in uh, kind of Foden, a, a sort of a false nine or up top, or kind of switching Sterling or De Bruyne to that position as well. Um, and again, you feel maybe you start Jesus or you start Aguero, you give yourself a little bit more of a, of a framework there to build off from. Um, I think it's difficult to pull off such a kind of fluid moving formation against three fairly static people at the back because they're not going to be pulled around very much because they know their roles and they know exactly what they have to do in that back five. Um, and Chelsea are happy to drop in, put two in front of that back three and have the wing backs there as well. Um, so how are you going to pull these players apart? Because they all know they have to stick to a certain framework in the system. Uh, in the back four, there's, there's almost a few more gaps and lines to exploit a lot of the time that you can do with a, with a false nine or with someone pulling in deeper, dragging one sense back with them, then you create the space for someone else to run in. But back three, it's a lot harder because there's always someone covering. So it almost benefits you to have a little bit more of a focal point um, against that kind of system. And they just didn't feel that Man City did, obviously, until they brought on Jesus. And at that point, they're already chasing the game. It's a little bit late. It feels a little bit desperate. And then, yeah, as I say, I just I can't get my head around the decision to bring Aguero on so late when he's such a phenomenal player still. And a player who's proven to score in the, in the very biggest of games. I just don't understand why you can give him more of a chance. Um, he's very fully fit. He looks really sharp in the last Premier League game, scored a couple of goals. I just can't get my head around not wanting to give him at least half an hour. Are we all going to fall in love with three at the back just in time for Southgate's men to win the Euros with it? Well, exactly. It looks like... Oi. <laughs> yeah, it's just a little bit of a difference between, you know, uh, Connor Cody and uh, Antonio Rudiger, but I'm, I'm sure it won't matter that much. <laughs> We'll have a quick look at last week's Europa League final, how Villarreal beat Man United. So the two news before this one, Harry Maguire was injured. So it was the lindelof Bailly partnership that most people were predicting. Pogba started in the midfield two with McTominay as Rashford and Greenwood were the two wingers. This meant no Fred. Uh, I'm always against this. I think Fred's had a really good season. <laughs> I, I would have had Fred starting. Um, Juan Foyth was deemed fit enough to start for Villarreal after he had some injury worries, even though he did end the game in a head bandage. And Etienne Capu was the preferred central midfield partner for Danny Parejo ahead of uh, Coquelin. Uh, the first goal was a Villarreal goal. It was a pretty soft one from a Parejo free kick. Um, it was Gerard Moreno who got his head to it, which was his 30th goal of the season. Uh, Luke Shaw was marking him. He lost his man. 
he sort of ran into a good space. Lind- Lindelof was closest to him, but as Lindelof never does, he didn't track or turn around or anything like this. He had no idea where Moreno was. That was 1-0. Ten minutes into the second half, Man United equalised. Uh, deflected Rashford shot, found its way to Cavani, who lashed home. United huffed and puffed, but they created very little. He was uh, Solskjaer seemed adamant not to make any subs. I, I looked at the bench. It wasn't of the highest quality. I don't think he trusted really anybody on there, except when it came to penalties. And you had Mata coming <laughs> on. He had Mata coming on and, and Tellez came on. Uh, and yeah, it did go to penalties. It finished 11-10 to Villarreal, probably the best penalty shoot I've ever seen. My favourite one, I think, was Coquelin's penalty, if you remember it. Side-footed it into the sort of top right corner, almost into the roof of the net. That was wonderful. It went down to the goalkeepers. Villarreal's keeper scored. And then David De Gea missed for Man United. And that was it. Yeah, Villarreal, Europa League champions. Who would have thunk it? So to that penalty discussion, I thought Pau Torres for Villarreal was very good as well. Yeah. Centre-back was definitely not... I think he was taking 10th as well, I think, right before the goalkeeper's. And he put in a really good penalty, uh, which I was not expecting. So, uh, I play to him for that. Um, yeah, overall, obviously, Manchester United would be very disappointed at that. I thought the team selection was a little bit more justified than Guardiola's. Um, I do get the logic of wanting to play Pogba deeper against uh, a team which tends to use a lower block um, and tends to drop quite deep. Obviously, you want Pogba to be spraying passes from the midfield a bit more. Um, we're going to be a little bit less space uh, in the centre in general. So I do get the logic. Though, as you say, you know, disappointing for Fred, who's been a great performer of Man United this season. But I think the idea behind it didn't really work. I'm not sure that's too much to do with Solskjaer himself. And I'm happy to be critical of him. And I think he should have been a bit uh, more eager to change things, even if he wasn't completely happy with the things on the bench. But I thought Emery just just played Villarreal's tactics really well. And it is something actually that the commentators noted, which I was pleased to see, that the centre-backs just dropped really deep whenever Man United had the ball. They knew Rashford and Greenwood making those runs inside would be potentially a big problem for them. They obviously didn't want Cavani getting any space in the box either. Um, and you've got two really good centre-backs. I mean, Albiol with experience uh, and Paul Torres, more of an up-and-coming player. Uh, but both have kind of good physical attributes, uh, kind of quite intelligent players in terms of their positioning. They were happy to just kind of drop deep, let the players ahead of them and either side of them deal with kind of the initial thrust and then be there if, if they needed to be, which I thought was really sensible. I think, you know, in, in general, I would say I prefer kind of a high pressing system, but Vera knew how to place their strengths and they were pressing at times. And it was interesting to know at what times they decided to press as well. I particularly noticed it at the start of the second half that they came out and they were really intent on their pressing for a while. And they really kind of looked to, to put my United a little bit kind of ill at ease and unsettle them at the start of the half. And then they dropped back a little bit. Um, I'm kind of content with of holding on a bit more. Um, so I think it was definitely really calculated for memory. He knew exactly when he wanted the team to press. He knew when they wanted to drop deep. And he knew when they could perhaps spark something off a counter or or a set piece, obviously, as they got the, um, the Moreno goal. And I feel like a lot of people, perhaps in the English press, were kind of culminating, didn't really realize that at all. And I know particularly 
sustain uh, Paul Scholes going on the whole match about how Villarreal weren't a very good team and if Man U just played a little bit better, showed a bit more spirit, they could, they could easily win this game. And just seemed to show absolutely no realisation as to what Villarreal were doing in the game. And this is all a well-executed plan. It's not that they were playing in a way that they couldn't keep up with Man United. They were playing exactly how they foresaw the game going. You're saying, oh, you win a game through set pieces. Yeah, that, that, that's how you win tight games in general. You, you have that extra margin. You have a set piece. You have a quick counter-attack. You do something that enables you to have that shift on the, perhaps a slightly better team. And no one really commented beforehand that, that Danny Parejo is you know, well-famed for his free kicks and corners. Um, he's an excellent set-piece taker and has been for quite a while. Uh, obviously, Valencia... And the fans in particular are very sad to lose him this summer. Um, you know, he's well known for being able to pick that out. And Man U have had the se- their problems this season uh, in terms of defending set pieces. So, I mean, 100% uh, guaranteed that Emery before the game has sat the players down um, in a briefing and told them, look, this team is vulnerable from set pieces and they're missing Harry Maguire. So if we put this ball in the right area, and we have Moreno who can use his movement, and we have someone disrupting the play like LBO, then we will get a great chance from a set piece at this game. It's almost guaranteed that that will happen. And if you can take that chance, then it could be decisive. And that's what you saw there. And it's not some kind of luck or kind of distraction even. Um, it's, it's, it's a game plan that's well executed. And I think a lot of people didn't really realise that. And yeah, as you said, I think Luke Shaw should do a lot better there. I think Lindelof is not too much to blame from what I saw. I think in the system he's playing, he's entitled to be looking ahead at the players in front of him, who he's kind of got covered. Shaw completely loses his man, which kind of basically disrupts the whole system. But again, that's something that's planned. And it's not necessarily even that bad defending. It's just, it's a well-executed move. They knew the weakness involved there and they really took advantage of that. So it's less an issue of, oh, Man United underplayed more. BRL played a system that was executed to perfection. Man United weren't really prepared to deal with that system, um, despite having individually better players. And you could see that when, for example, the odd occasion where Rashford or Greenwood got the ball and could able to uh, sort of run at the defence. And Riera did, did look a little bit scared at that point, I thought, at times. They looked a bit apprehensive as to what to do. Um, but those occasions were so rare because of the system that was played that it didn't matter too much in the end. So I think it just shows the advantage there of the kind of the systemic as opposed to the individual. Um, yeah, sure, you can have the best players in the world, but if they're not really united in what you want to do to them and kind of 100% focused on a certain game plan or system, and they're equipped to deal with a team that's really well coached, then it's going to kind of find them wanting. I think, yeah, in, in that sense, a really great triumph for, for Emery's coaching and his methods. Uh, so, yeah, I think congratulations, obviously, to, to quite a small team in, in many ways, in terms of small town as well, really showing the value of, of being well coached and well drilled. Sometimes in players who really understood what they were required to do on the pitch and executed that. Perfection. I thought the punditry beforehand, as you just mentioned, Paul Scholes. I thought it was like 
was some of the most disrespectful stuff I'd seen in a long time. Like that Paul Scholes talking about Villarreal finishing seventh in a poor La Liga, uh, just because just because one of the main two didn't win La Liga this year. Obviously, it's a it's a terrible, you know, pathetic season. Um, I thought that was really weird. But I, I think there's in this country as well. There's people look at Unai Emery and they saw what he did at Arsenal and. He obviously didn't. He didn't really break any ground with that team. It was always going to be a struggle. But people sort of looked at him and thought, "Oh, he's he's not good enough. Like he'll settle back into Spain in a sort of mid-table, maybe challenge for Europa League kind of team." Despite all the things he's won, despite the Europa League success he's had in the past, I feel like most people wouldn't rate him as a manager in this country. And he, yeah, he he deserves everything. Like for what happened last week, like it was absolutely, it was a, just a great performance. He, um, and we all know how Man United have been this season when teams just get everybody behind the ball, you know, and there's something to appreciate about that. Like, I don't think there's anything wrong with knowing what your strengths are, what your opposition's weaknesses are. Like, it's not like anti-football or anything like that. I just thought they defended so well. Ian Capu, who I can't remember having too many standout games for Tottenham or Watford, I thought he, he played really well. He didn't really give United anything. Um, talking about Sterling being quite poor for City, I thought Rashford was pretty terrible for United as well. Uh, he obviously didn't deserve any of the abuse he got online afterwards, but he was, he just, he didn't look like he was doing anything. He had some bad touches, giving the ball away. So I don't think him or Sterling or, I think the, either of them would be lucky to be starting in the first Euros game. United's best player was probably Scott McTominay. I thought he, he outperformed. Yeah, he was excellent. Yeah. He, he outperformed both Bruno Fernandes and Paul Pogba. And, while I'm while I'm mentioning Fernandez, like is there is there a tiny bit of an argument forming where Fernandez is sort of failing to live up to the hype in these big games? Perhaps, but again, if we talk about Fernandez and Rashford, I think it's almost a temptation. It's something that's always done in the English football media, where you look at individuals in a team who didn't quite cut the mustard, and you say, "Oh, it's down to them because they individually underperformed." Instead of thinking, why is it that they underperformed? Maybe that's something to do with the context of the team around them and what the other team are doing to nullify that threat. So in this case, Villarreal effectively realized that we don't want Rashford and Greenwood cutting in from the wings and we don't want Fernandez floating in that space around and sort of just outside or just inside our, um, our penalty area. Um, and so they put players there to counter that specific threat. They dropped deep to counter that threat. And they instituted a system which nullified that kind of threat um, and nullified the tactical change that the Solskjaer made in terms of moving Pogba deeper to try to harness the threat of those three players in particular, but also Cavani up front. And perhaps instead of questioning, you know, and obviously a disappointing performance. I mean, there's no getting around it from Rashford and Fernandez players. You expect to step up. Um, but why should the expectation be on them to step up instead of saying they should be fitting into the context of a good team performance, which is working well as a system, instead of saying, you know, maybe it's one of those where the players weren't really put in a position to get the best out of them because they're not employed in a role which suits them against a, a team that they can actually play well against and that the manager didn't adapt the system when he saw it wasn't working Solskjaer didn't really change anything to enable the best out of those players once he saw that it was going wrong. So I think it's a little bit, again, the idea of the individual versus a system. Maybe we should be putting a little bit more attention on 
why their overall game plan didn't function, didn't work, as opposed to saying, oh, it must have just been a bad day for their front players, which I think is a little bit of an underwhelming analysis in general. Yeah, and that also takes a lot of the gloss off of what the other team's done to win, doesn't it? So I feel I think that is probably fair. Um but yeah, these these penalties, they were absolutely insane, weren't they? I've never I've never seen a shootout like that. I think any shootout from here on in is just gonna be like be so disappointing compared to what we saw the other night. Like some of the best penalties. David De Gea didn't ever really look like saving one. He kind of reminded me of uh, I don't know if you remember, but Roy Carroll in the 2005 FA Cup final, uh, <laughs> he he never got anywhere near an Arsenal penalty. Uh, as soon as Paul Scales missed, you knew that Arsenal were going to win the FA Cup. And I sort of thought it was just it was a bit like that um, last week. But that that could I mean he'll probably lose the number one shirt to Henderson from next season. So it could be like one of the last games that David de Gea is remembered for, really. Yeah, it's a shame. It's obviously, he's been a great goalkeeper for them, but um, it's remarkable. His penalty serving record, I think it's the last 30 that he hasn't saved. Um, wow. Basically got got anywhere near, as you're saying. So even really the, uh, the very old keeper had a couple, which you felt that at least he got a hand on. Maybe he should have saved. I think Luke Shaw's is the one I'm thinking yeah, of in particular. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. And that he should have kept out. But maybe that's, I don't know if that's a psychological thing from the hair that he's Kind of at this stage, even just psyching himself out, thinking, do I dive early? Do I dive late? And I think he was always trying both things in the shootout. I could see him sometimes seem to dive before the ball was kicked and sometimes seem to dive afterwards. Um, but yeah, I think it's probably just a general crisis of confidence with him a little bit as well, probably in the last couple of seasons. He hasn't really lived up to, you know, a, a deservedly excellent reputation uh, at Manchester United. And with Spain, but yeah, perhaps we're seeing sort of the twilight of his career, at least at Manchester United, and maybe he needs to go somewhere else to, to kind of rediscover that spark as well. Uh, but yeah, as a shootout, I think the closest analogy would probably be the uh, the Ivory Coast Zambia African Cup of Nations final uh, shootout, which was another one where I think those pens were even better. In fairness, I, think, I seem to remember pretty much every penalty went into the top corner. But yeah, I think that's the closest I can think of in terms of that quality of penalty. Yeah, I remember that game. That was amazing because obviously everyone wanted the underdog Zambia to win. And they, I remember they had a striker, uh, Mayuka, who went on to play mm. for Southampton. I don't think he ever did anything for Southampton, but I had it. I think I signed him on career mode like later that day. And I was just, <laughs> uh, yeah, he was, he was my hero for about two weeks. Hey, everybody. Brett Gunselman here on Pivotal Week 8 of the NFL season. Now stay tuned for six hours of exciting football action. Yep, bye-bye, Belt. <sighs> the late May bank holiday weekend is probably one of my favourite weekends of the year. Not only do we get a Monday off and the weather's normally okay, but there's just so much football. We've already gone through the Champions League final of Saturday night, but you also have the the three playoff finals, Championship League One and League Two. Uh, the Championship player final was Saturday. This was between Brentford and Swansea. This is known as the most valuable game in football. It's worth, I think, I saw £178 million to whoever wins this game. So quite a big deal. Um, it, Brentford versus Swansea, as I say, it was third versus fourth in the league table. Brentford had beat Bournemouth to get to Wembley. Swansea had beaten Barnsley. The Bees took the lead quite early from the penalty spot. Brian Embremo was fouled by Freddie Woodman in the Swansea net. 
Ivan Tony stepped up. He scored his 33rd goal of the season in all competitions. Uh, Brentford were 2-0 up within 20 minutes. Brian and Boma again, driving the ball forward from his own half. The ball went wide to Ruslev, who found Emiliano Marcondes at the back post. It was a lovely finish, side-footed into the corner. Tony nearly made it 3-0 seconds later. He had a dip-in volley, half-volley from outside the box, cannoned off the crossbar. Jay Fulton would be sent off for Swansea in the second half. It was a bit of a weird one. Like He slipped and landed on Matthias Jensen's heel of Brentford. It made it look like a lot worse than it was, but at full speed, it looked like a terrible tackle. So he was sent off. But yeah, what an achievement for Brentford. They're, they were in the third tier as, soon, as recently as 2014. They were in League Two as recently as 2009. First time in the top flight for 74 years. This is this is pretty great, isn't it? Yeah, and it's interesting that there was another side in the playoffs, uh, Bournemouth, who I guess you could say are comparable in terms of rising up from the fourth tier as well in relatively quick time. Well, in that case, a lot of that was perhaps due to, to Eddie Howe and the old system around him. I guess in Brentford, you would say it's more of a top-down structure with the club. They've really kind of... I think the chairman and the ownership structure there, they've really looked to implement a very distinctive style. Um, I guess less in terms of the style on the pitch, but more in terms of the style of what they do in the back room. Um, I guess employing, I guess you, you would call them sort of money ball tactics in terms of really scouting out underappreciated players, using statistics quite a bit, employing quite a lot of scouting staff to look at areas in particular Scandinavia as areas of sort of undervalued talent, being able to bring players in um, for relatively small sums and be able to develop them, you know, in a way that you know, other teams in the championship, particularly bigger budgets, might just look at someone who's who scored 20 goals the previous season in the championship and want to bring them in. In general, Brentford have been looking at sort of undervalued players and bringing new players in. And it's paid off them finally. I think you know, we mentioned in, in the preview to this game um, that they've had a little bit of a bad luck in the playoffs or not done so well, perhaps um, just some suspicions of bottling it at that level. But they really came out and they were impressive. I think, you know, thinking back to the Champions League final, I had a suspicion, I think we both had a suspicion that Chelsea could really win it and pull it off. I thought Swansea would pull this one off, um, but I'm happy to say that I was very wrong on that. And Brentford really deserved, uh, deserved their, their promotion. And yeah, it's interesting as well. I think the difference that someone like Ivan Tony can make. So I think if there's one thing that Brentford perhaps in previous seasons were lacking a little bit, is that someone who scored, you know, 30 goals in the season. Um, they had Ollie Watkins, but again, I think he was a little bit more of a foil to the likes of Ben Rama, um, the likes of Mbumo coming off the flanks and scoring goals. In this case, they really have a number nine who, you know, was out and out goal scorer incredible scoring record uh, and you know that he was going to do it in the biggest game as well. I think that's something that they were accused of with players like Ben Rama that um, perhaps they were great for the week in, week out of the championship but uh, wouldn't step up to that playoff final level. They, they've kind of ticked all the boxes now and you know they could be a really ex exciting proposition for the, the Premier League next season as well. Lose, like you say, Ben Rama and Ollie Watkins after losing the playoff final last year, like there was absolutely no guarantee that they would be anywhere near the playoffs this season. Um, 
and so to bring um, to bring Ivan Tony in from Peterborough for I think it was about five million, which could rise to like eight million. And you know now we're, I think with in terms of money now, if you're one of the best players in the championship or one of the top scorers in the championship, you're going to be judged on that fee that Ollie Watkins went for, which was you know what forty million something like that. So he's he if someone was to buy him now, like he would probably be worth something similar. They're talking about Buendia. If he leaves, they're talking about mm-hmm. wanting 35, 40 million for him as well. So, but again, you know, there was no guarantee Ivan Tony was going to do what he did this year. Like, so absolutely fair play to him. He, he'd had the year of his life at Peterborough. Before that, he'd been at uh, Newcastle, he'd been at Northampton, he'd been at Wigan on loan. Hadn't really put up any numbers that would suggest that he was this kind of player, but he's had, he's just been absolutely insane. Uh, I think he had the chance to, play for Jamaica earlier this year and they were desperate to get him to get him that cap so he was committed to them but I think he uh, he turned them down because he might have a sniff of an England cap at some point <laughs> but yeah he, he's been absolutely insane quick word on the other two player finals uh, yesterday we saw uh, Blackpool and Lincoln City compete for the right to play in the championship next year obviously being the one of the University of Lincoln's greatest alumni I was absolutely <laughs> begging for the imps to to win this game they went ahead within a minute from a Blackpool own goal which is quite comedic one of them ones where the defenders the defender gets the ball he sort of got his goal line there and he knows there's an attacker behind him so he has to clear the ball somewhere but he managed to clear it into his own net uh, but two goals from Kenny Dougal and Blackpool went up Everyone was predicting them to probably win this game. They had a really good end to the season and they're back in the championship. And then today's final, the League Two final, saw Newport play against Morecambe. Uh, This game's just finished. It went to extra time. There weren't too many chances in it. Morecambe got a penalty in in extra time and scored it. And they're going to be a League One team next year. And I think they were... They were joint favourites for relegation from League Two this season. So that is a really big achievement for Morecambe. It's a good, it's been a good weekend for the sort of Lancashire uh, seaside towns with Blackpool and Morecambe both winning. So well done. Mr. Worldwide, Becky G, let's set the world on fire. Copa America. Let's have a quick look at Copper America and whatever is happening with the hosts. So just to fill everybody in, we're 13 days to go until the South America's uh, international tournament kicks off. Um, it was due originally to be shared by Argentina and Colombia. Colombia were forced to withdraw uh, a couple of weeks ago due to the massive protests going on in their country a lot of people on the streets fighting for social and economic change. So Common Ball stripped them of the right to host, which left just Argentina hosting. Just this weekend, Argentina have been forced to drop out too. Uh, the official line Common Ball gave was this was due to present circumstances. Thursday last week saw a record, record number of COVID cases in one day in Argentina. The death toll was nearly hitting 77,000, I think. Um, the, the Argentina's clubs know how bad things are. I don't think we mentioned this previously, but uh, a couple of weeks ago, River Plate had a Copa Libertadores match. 
they had 22 first team players unavailable due to COVID. They were forced to play their midfielder Enzo Perez in goal uh, and they won 2-1, I think, which was a pretty great result considering you're playing your, your sort of midfielder in sticks. There was some really sad news to come out of the River COVID outbreak, though. Um, their, their coach driver contracted it, uh, Gustavo Insua. Uh, he was only 58, but he contracted COVID and he passed away last week, actually, from it. So, you know, things are really bad over there. Uh, and so they will not be hosting uh, the Copa America this summer. So there has been news, you're telling me, isn't there, about who is going to host it? Yeah, so Brazil are stepping in. On the surface, it does make some sense that the, literally the only country who can step in with this short notice um, because they have the infrastructure in place in terms of the stadiums, the kind of venues and everything to be able to host a tournament like this, you know, literally less less than two weeks' notice. But at the same time, it, it does strike as a little bit of a weird decision because the COVID, place, COVID cases are in Brazil bearing in mind that it is a significantly larger country than Argentina, actually higher than Argentina at the moment. Um, and throughout, it's been essentially a hotspot for COVID. Uh, the vaccination program has not gone particularly well. It's been notorious for, you know, President of Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro, coming out and essentially at various points denying COVID or uh, claiming that Brazil was handling COVID extremely well, apparently contracting COVID himself about five different occasions. Um, while still kind of going out and, and going to events with his supporters on, on various boats and barbecues and assorted kind of events where he tried to prove that you know COVID wasn't a problem. So it does seem like a very odd, odd place to host it. I mean, you've got essentially as well recent protests in Brazil. Uh, we mentioned uh, the Colombian protests, but in Brazil themselves, they've had recently huge marches, for example, in Sao Paulo basically coming out um, in protest against the Bolsonaro government and in particular the handling of the COVID situation uh, while also um, looking to ensure that vaccinations and vaccines are uh, kind of broken out of their IP protection and provided to, to global South countries, uh, for example, such as countries in South America. Um, so, you know, I don't think there's anywhere in Latin America or in South America that could host the tournament comfortably at this stage, then you'd have to ask why it's still going ahead. And the answer is probably money <laughs> at the end of the day. And that if you look at, for example, you know, just a very brief snapshot, but the Twitter replies under the, the Commebol um, kind of announcement that they're moving it to Brazil. And you see, you know, very many people uh, essentially saying, you know, why has this been moved to Brazil? And we all know the reason why it's money and how is this possibly benefiting any normal fan of the Copa America? Because how are the fans going to go in the stadiums there and watch the matches? Especially, definitely not any fan outside Brazil is going to go to Brazil and watch a match at this stage. And I'm doubtful that many fans in, within Brazil, given the situation, will be able to go and watch matches either. And the players and also, as you, as you mentioned, the very good point, the staff around them were often given many fewer protections than the players. As you say, the coach driver, who sadly passed away uh, for River Plate. Um, you've got a lot of staff connected to these fixtures and these tournaments who are going to go unnoticed and you know potentially be put in harm's way 
to ensure that a tournament happens when really the controls and protections are not there. And this is a tournament that, you know, could could definitely just take place another year or another time of the year when um, perhaps the situation has been stabilised a little bit um, and you have a better conditions to be able to have it go ahead. I don't think really anyone's going to be particularly excited at this point to see it go ahead. And obviously, you know, you have the Euros going ahead, but I do feel like at least a certain degree of thought has been put into the venues. The vaccination programmes are a lot more developed, particularly in the UK and a couple of other European countries who might be hosting. Uh, and you have some protections and I guess I would say a little bit of a less uh, turbulent political situation in a couple of the countries as well. Um, I just don't see, in this case, anything other than pure greed could be behind a decision to, to host the event in Brazil at this stage. And it's, uh, yeah, it's a bit of a shame to see the, the competition reduced to that. Yeah, it's obviously about money. Um, I was reading a goal article that was just making that case so clear, like how uh, Ball would have no intention whatsoever of cancelling it. Uh, it said that the last Copa America, which was also held in Brazil in 2019, that brought in $118 million. So it, it's just uh, with many things, as we, we talked about, it's it's money being put before human life, really. Like, I, I just can't see a reason other than that why it would be going ahead. I read someone even suggested that the, the USA might host it, but they've obviously got their Gold Cup uh, happening at the same time. So... That was never really going to work. I even saw somebody suggesting that uh, England should be hosting it. And, you know, <laughs> if, if that was an in- intriguing idea, we might actually get a ticket for a game if that was the case. Yeah, no, from a personal point of view, that'd be great. But uh, I don't think it would work out logistically for all the teams. I'd be happy with no Copa America this year. No chance of Emi Buendia getting injured. No chance of any potential suitors thinking that Emi Buendia would be a good addition to their team. Let's just pretend it doesn't happen. It doesn't. It didn't exist. 1972, under a scorching June sun, in the French coastal town of Marseille, two Algerian immigrants awaited the birth of their fifth child. Later that day, a star was born. Lastly, I think we need to talk about the absolute whirlwind week it's been at Real Madrid. The Real Madrid soap opera continues to jaunt along with crazy things happening. Um, If I remind you, it was just last weekend that Real failed in their attempt to wrestle the La Liga title from Atletico. Um, They ended up coming second as Atleti won it. Just a few days later, last week, it was announced that Zinedine Zidane would be leaving his role as the head coach of Los Blancos. He's obviously a, a Real Madrid legend as a player and as a manager too with the trio of Champions Leagues that he won. But today, uh, a letter that Zidane um, wrote to the fans has been published detailing why he left and it doesn't look very good for Florentino Perez, the president. He wrote, I am not abandoning ship and I am not tired of coaching. I'm going because I feel that the club no longer gives me the trust I need and doesn't offer me the support needed to build something in the mid and long term. Over the last few months, I would have liked my relationship with the club and the president to have been a bit different to that of other managers. He he added, I want everything we did together to be respected, insisting I am not asking for privileges 
of course not, but a bit of memory. What do you make of this? I think the most interesting sentence is the, um, I would have liked a relationship with the club and president to have been a bit different to the other managers. So, I mean, clearly he's aware of the history of the club in terms of managers being forced out after often, you know, quite successful periods or even successful times at the club. Now we talk about the likes of Capello, I believe Heinkes was forced out as well. You have Rafa Benitez pretty recently. Um, and yeah, he's looked at people like that and thought, okay, I, I know, I, I kind of know what Perez is about a little bit, but, you know, I'm a club legend. They can't do this to me, especially after winning now, you know, three Champions Leagues of the club. Must have thought, you know, things will be a little bit different for me. I'll have a bit more respect, a bit more weight that I can throw around here make sure they can get things like how I want them. But it seems like, you know, Perez is Perez. He's just going to undermine you, whatever you want to do, if you're not completely on board with his plans. It seems like Zidane is now kind of bearing the brunt of that. And he's basically, you know, I think quite rightly in his case, decided, you know, I'm just going to walk away because why should I put up with this? And even if I go somewhere and maybe I'm not as successful or I don't have the resources available to me, um, but at least get a little bit more respect from from the ruling hierarchy at a club where, you know, I mean, he's never going to lack respect from Real Madrid fans. He's about as big a legend as you can be at any club. And there's no really real reason for him to put up with taking that from, from the club president in a system where it doesn't look like that's going to change. And so understandably, they kind of, he's reached that conclusion. And I think it's going to mark quite a period of change potentially at Real Madrid as well. Uh, or even if you just talk about the two figures of Zidane and Sergio Ramos. I mean, if you look at Ramos, very likely to leave. I believe he's linked with uh, Manchester City today. Um, I don't know how much validity there is to that. Um, but yeah, this will undoubtedly be a big summer of change, as, as you were saying, uh, adding to the Real Madrid soap opera. Perez will, as long as he's there, always be the number one character. So anyone who comes in or is there has to adjust to what he does. Um, and if you're not willing to do that, then there's no real role for you at the club. Um, and Sudan felt clearly that he wasn't willing to do that anymore. So, um, yeah, I can't really blame him for uh, rubbing sticks. I think that is it because it's like, obviously he knows the club so much better than any of us would do on the outside. But when you see it, when you saw him going back in, in March 2019 to be the head coach again after leaving 10 months previous to that, it was it was almost a bit like, oh, like never go back. But like with the toxic club that is Real Madrid, like never, ever go back, especially while, while Perez is there. Like I, I can't imagine how difficult it would be to work for a man like that, a man who I'm pretty sure still believes that this Super League idea can happen in some way, shape or form. Like I think I'd love, I really want to, I'm looking forward now actually to seeing Zidane at a different team. Um, if Juve weren't going back to Allegri, I think... Juve, him to Juve could have been a potential shout since though he played for them. But it'll be interesting to see where he pops up next. Um, there was rumours in the autumn and winter that have gone where Madrid were meant to be in the process of getting rid of Zidane for, for how they for how Real were playing. Um, and I think he Zidane, Zidane him think, himself thinks that those rumours about his sacking came from within to sort of destabilise the team. He, he clearly hasn't felt felt back for a long, long time. And and I think time will probably tell that this was the right thing to do. Yeah, I look forward to him uh, turning up at Celtic soon. That'll be a, a great appointment for them. Well, yeah, well, have you seen who they've got? They've got um, 
uh, and he's an Australian uh, um, Greek manager, I think. Oh, no, it's actually confirmed. Oh, I was joking because I thought they hadn't confirmed their, their new manager yet. Oh, actually, no. I googled it just now. Celtic manager latest. Uh, Postacoglu approach is in jeopardy. So they, they take 93, <laughs> 93 days to try and get Eddie Howe. Probably another 93 days to see if Postacoglu go, but comes. And then then they'll probably have to go to knock on Neil Lennon's door, hat in hand, asking if he wants to come back. Another episode done. Thank you for coming on, Luis, on this Bank Holiday Monday. Oh, thanks again, Tom. Loved it as usual. We'll be back next week with a Euro special. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Goodbye. <laughs>